The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. The first decade of the 21st century saw an extraordinary rise in confident atheism. Now the whirlwind has settled, what does the future of belief look like? In this talk, philosopher and author of Atheism, a very short introduction, Julian Bagini, explores the new landscape of atheism. Julian Bagini is a British philosopher, journalist and author of over 20 philosophy books. Since graduating with a PhD from University College London, he has co-founded the Philosopher's Magazine and been a regular contributor to both national and international newspapers. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Julian Bagini to Philosophy for Our Times. Atheism revisited. Do we really want to revisit atheism again? Is it getting a bit boring after all that new atheism stuff, maybe? But anyway, we'll try not to make it boring. So um, I've revisited atheism myself because... I wrote the very short introduction to atheism in the Oxford University Press series, and that came out uh, before the God delusion and all that kind of stuff, and we've finally done a second edition. So I've kind of been forced to sit down and think about it again, which is not something I, I like to do a lot, funnily enough. There are kind of like professional atheists um, who like to sort of like constantly be writing for the upteenth time more reasons why you shouldn't be religious and atheism is great. And uh, personally, I just think, you know, there's quite a lot to think about in life, really. And, uh, you know, having sort of decided, come to a fairly settled conclusion about these things, of course, you want to keep an open mind and keep thinking. But I kind of don't want it to be my life's obsession. Nevertheless, it's quite good occasionally to revisit things. So what I want to sort of just talk about a bit is simply, you know, where are we now with atheism? What perhaps have we learned from the last 10 to 15 years of the new atheist movement and the responses to it? But to start, I actually want to sort of go back further than that, because I think if you look at some of the, uh, the beginnings of atheism in the West, I think there's some interesting little kind of lessons to learn there. Um, the first, there's always this sort of like, it's like a pub quiz question in which no one's going to be happy because people are going to dispute what the answer is. You know, what, who was the first avowed atheist in 
let's the, the, so say you know, the, the, the modern West or the, the origins of the modern world. And uh, someone who has a claim to that was a priest called Jean Mezier, I think his name was. And he, was, he, was he was a priest who wrote this book, which is like a testament of his unbelief. It was, was never published in his lifetime. And various fake versions ended up going around. But what was interesting about this priest was he continued to work as a priest, even though he stopped believing in God, which actually what we discovered is something that continues to happen to this very day. And that in itself, I think, is, is a really interesting reason. Why did he continue to work as a priest? Well, actually, the reason he continued to work with a, as a priest was connected with his reasons for rejecting uh, religion. He went into the priesthood because he had a concern for the lives of the generally pretty poor and unfortunate folk who, who, who surrounded him. He wanted to do good for the people. And one of the reasons why he lost his faith was he came to see uh, the Christian church, uh, the Catholic Church of France at the time, as actually doing the exact opposite of what he wanted to do. They weren't actually helping the poor at all. In fact, often they were like taking money from them, you know. Uh, they were poor enough already and they expected them to chuck their money into the collection plate to kind of line the pockets of, of the clergy and all that kind of thing. But having sort of like lost his faith, and obviously it wasn't just discussed with the church institutions, he came to believe there was no God as well. He continued to work as a priest because that was the best way in which he could serve his parishioners. And I think that early experience of like maybe the first avowed atheist in, 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 in sort of Europe, in, in modern Europe, kind of contains a bit of a, a, a warning for, for, for future generations, which is actually the rejection of religion is quite complicated. And it doesn't necessarily mean the throwing out of everything. He held on to his position. He held on to that priestly role because he thought it could do some good. Fast forward a bit to another great sort of hero of contemporary atheists, David Hume. Right, David Hume is one of my great philosophical heroes too. He's often kind of referred to by modern day atheists and, and humanists, which are pretty much the same thing. We can say a bit more about that, that later. Uh, Hume was very famous for his arguments against the traditional arguments for the existence of God. He was, he was pretty devastating about them. So, you know, um, if you ever do a, 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 if you ever have the misfortune to do a very standard philosophy of religion course or something, it, it, it is, it's, I guess it is quite interesting the first time you do it, but hopefully by the end of it, you come to realize that it, it, it's a load of nonsense, really, in the sense that, um, you know, people who are religious are not religious because of these arguments you're presented with. So, the, you know, this argument, for example, that there must be a God because the universe must have a cause and the first cause must itself be uncaused, bingo, God. These, these are kind of arguments people have, right? I've simplified it a bit, but that's virtually the argument. Uh, or that, you know, the, the universe shows signs of design. That means it must have a designer. They're, they're all a bit boring because they're actually very bad arguments, and it's not difficult to show that they're bad. But Hume was really the person who, who showed them to be bad very, very early on. And he was, had a reputation in his time for being uh, the great infidel, they called him. And his, his, his heresy was not, fortunately for him, literally dangerous. Um, it might have been at other times not so far before. The last woman to be burnt for witchcraft in Scotland, I think, was within Hume's lifetime when he was very young, right? But nevertheless, it got in his way a couple of times he was up for a position as a professor 
at, uh, once at Edinburgh, I think, and once at Glasgow University. And both times he didn't get it. And that was almost certainly because he was considered too um, dangerous for his heretical views on religion. And one of his works wasn't even published in his lifetime because he thought it would bring himself, create too many problems for himself, so it was published uh, posthumously. For all these reasons, you can see David Hume is celebrated as a great kind of you know, pioneer of, of atheist thought. But what's interesting is a story told about Hume. Actually, there's another a little story I'll tell you as well. A story told about Hume, which seems to be fairly well based in fact. It's probably, you know, like a lot of these stories, it probably didn't happen quite like this, but there's something, something like it. In, in later life, Hume... Uh, went to Paris, and by that time he was a very celebrated writer, and the French loved him. They, they called him Le Bon David, and he was fated, and he, he went to all the salons, and he was like a, he was like a superstar, you know, a rock star, the sort of Slavoj Žižek of his time, only um, more comprehensible. Um, <laughs> actually, he wasn't really very comprehensible. He had a very thick Scottish accent and spoke terrible French, so he probably was literally, almost literally, the Slavoj Žižek of his time. And um, it, the, a lot of the, the French Enlightenment philosophers were were quite uh, professedly atheists. Some of them were, were deists, and the deists had this belief that there, there was a creator God, but having created the universe, he basically buggered off and didn't care about it, had nothing to do with it. Um, forgive these slightly uh, informal formulations, but that's pretty accurate. Uh, but a lot of them were, were atheists, and, and Hume went there, and it had a dinner party, uh, which was hosted by Baron Dolbach. Baron Dolbach was famous for his wonderful sort of like literary uh, dinners and philosophical dinners. He, he, he had quite a lot of money. He actually kept quite a modest home in, 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 in Paris, but he spent all his money on fine food and wine. He had his priorities straight, right? And uh, he had these lovely parties in which all the great and good were there. Uh, and um, Hume said that he had um, never seen, and he didn't know if he believed in atheists because he had never seen one in his life. And uh, Holbeck, Dolbeck said to him, well, you know, count the number around our table, you know. Uh, there are 17 among us and the other four haven't decided yet, you know. So, and, and Hume was apparently shocked by this. Now, we, although this is one story, if you look at the rest of Hume's work carefully in, in his letters and everything, it does actually seem quite clear that there was a sense in which he wasn't an atheist in that strict sense of saying, God doesn't exist absolutely, no way, right? It wasn't like that. He was a rational skeptic who argued that there was no reason at all to believe that God existed. We should act on the assumption that God doesn't. But he wouldn't go so far as to say God doesn't exist, full stop, fact. And, and it was that, I think, that, that's the only explanation for why it was he was apparently shocked by the atheism of the French, because he clearly did act and live as though there were no God and no afterlife. And there were stories of him on his deathbed saying he didn't expect anything to come. But he, he stopped short a bit of that absolute certainty because, I mean, if you know Hume's philosophy, he, was, he, he thought you could, have an, you could not have absolute certainty about anything, let alone uh, the existence of God. And this is quite interesting because Hume is a hero to a lot of atheists today who I think are not quite as uh, circumspect as him. Now, I was going to be very careful with terms here. Bertrand Russell, uh, you know, after Hume, wrote something in which he said, strictly speaking, amongst philosophers or something, he ought to be called an agnostic, right? Because he couldn't be sure that God didn't exist. 
But, he said, it would be extremely misleading to say that because if you say to most people, I'm an agnostic, they would take that to mean that you take the existence of God to be an open question, I don't know, could be, could not be, I shrug my shoulders. And he said on that, he wasn't an agnostic in this sense. He thought God's existence was as likely as the existence of like the Greek gods, gods Zeus and, and Apollo and all that kind of thing. So there's a kind of a technical distinction which I think sometimes people trip up on and they, they, they kind of think that atheist means absolutely dogmatic 100% certain and that anything else is agnostic and without getting sort of like bogged down in what the correct terminology is to use I think that the way we use those terms today atheist should simply mean a person who does not believe in God and that does not mean that they rule out the possibility that they could be wrong. It doesn't mean they're 100% certain. It's like, like Hume, like Bertrand Russell, they see no reason to believe that God exists and act accordingly. But nonetheless, the very fact that both Russell and Hume, great atheist humors, were very careful not to overstate their case, I think is, is interesting and should be remembered when we think about how best to be atheists today. So there's, a, there's, there's always sort of back history then of atheism in the West. And I'm talking about atheism in the West because there's an interesting question about, you know, what do we mean by atheism? And is atheism actually a kind of a, a phenomenon of the sort of Judeo-Christian Judeo world and the Islamic world as well? Literally, atheism, sure, you all kind of know this. A is the, 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 the privative meaning not theism belief in, in God. I mean, the literal meaning of atheism is, you know, not God or not gods. And so a lot of people say, therefore, atheism exists only in distinction to theism. So where there is no theism, there can be kind of no, no atheism. And so in other words, atheism is, a, is, is something you only find in theistic cultures. I think there's something a bit fishy about that, though, because the point is one shouldn't get too as it were, bogged down in, in, in names. Um, the reason why I think we think of atheism, the reason that term is such a key term, is that in Western culture, theism has been the dominant position for centuries, right? So anyone who did not uh, buy into the theistic line was defined in distinction to that as atheistic right? Because that's the biggest thing that they disagreed with. But actually, I would say that atheism fundamentally is characterized best as a form of, form of naturalism. Now, there's all sorts of, again, cans of worms we can get into here. But what this essentially means is that people who are atheists, sure, they don't believe in God, but that's, that's not the whole story, right? They do believe in other things. What do they believe in? They believe that essentially the natural world is the only world that there is. And what they mean by the natural world is the world which is described in physical terms at its most fundamental level by the natural sciences, right? I say in physical terms at its most fundamental level. Of course, you can believe in things like, you know, love, beauty, et cetera, et cetera, which are not scientific terms. But the naturalist believes that those things emerge out of a world which is fundament fundamentally made up of hydrogen, oxygen, et cetera, et cetera, or the more fundamental things that more advanced physics says exists. So I think atheism is essentially a kind of a naturalism which has no room for anything supernatural of which the traditional monotheistic gods of Christianity and Judaism are just uh, 
a couple of examples, but you know, it'd be very, um, the, the vast majority of atheists also don't believe in things like uh, uh, haunted houses or, or mediumship or things like that. They, 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 they think that's all of those things are part of a uh, belonging in the realm of the non-natural, the supernatural, and such things can't exist. So in that sense, you could say there's atheism beyond the West, there's atheism beyond modern Europe. Arguably, uh, China is, is uh, historically an atheist um, culture in the sense that it's predominantly been a very naturalistic sort of worldview in which uh, there isn't sort of any sort of place for certainly no uh, God leading things and, and probably no kind of afterlife. So we should bear in mind that in that sense, atheism can be a very, very broad kind of movement. But if we think of atheism in a slightly more narrow sense, as in what has gone by that name, which we're mainly talking about as a product of uh, uh, European culture, then we've got the back history there, I've said before, Jean Mezier and um, Hume and Bertrand Russell. And I, I wrote my, my little book introducing it in which I tried to say various things about it. I, I went into detail about this naturalism and how atheism is essentially a form of naturalism, how atheism doesn't necessarily lead to sort of like despair and nihilism. A lot of people think that if you're an atheist, it means that, you know, life has no meaning or purpose and therefore you may as well just go and kill yourself. And that also atheism has no room for morality because without God, there can be no morality because there's no moral law giver, et cetera, et cetera. So I talked about this and I tried to advocate for a form of atheism which I said was non-dogmatic. I thought that was a key thing because I think a lot of the problems people had with accepting atheism was that they believed atheists said that there is no God and I'm 100% certain about that and it's a fact, right? And they were very dogmatic and certain. And if you look at Hume and Russell, et cetera, I don't think that's what atheists said. So I was presenting this sort of like fluffy, cuddly, friendly version of atheism, which, um, and making it safe for people. Because it's funny, actually, at the time I wrote it in the introduction, I was saying, atheism, I think, still had a certain kind of dark undercurrent for a lot of people. If you said the word atheist, it sounded a bit kind of dangerous. Um, I know in Italy it is quite strange. I went to, I'm half Italian, as you can probably tell by my, my surname. And I went, to, I went to a family wedding in Italy or something. And they said, oh, are you, are you, are you, are you Catholic? Because uh, it was in the church. And I said, no. And they said, oh, Protestant? And I said, uh, no. And they went, atheist? <laughs> yeah. And I went, yeah. And they were really kind of shocked, you know. Now, that's quite extreme because, you know, Italy is still perhaps a little bit more conservative like that. But... You know, when I grew up, even though I, you know, there's, there seems to be something a bit transgressive about this term, term atheist, and I, I didn't think there should be. I wanted to normalise it. Anyway, fast forward. Shortly after this happened, then we had this explosion of the thing called the new atheism, which was where atheism became uh, fun again, or at least interesting for a while. Um, of course, it started with Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and my great claim to fame is that he quotes... He, I'm quoted in The God Delusion, isn't that nice, as a definition of that? Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Um, and then along that, Christopher Hitchens, and in particular, Sam Harris. Um, along with Daniel Dennett, these people are often called the Four Horsemen, um, <laughs> which they rather liked, you know. Um, I, think, I think, to be fair, Dennett does, stands a little bit apart from the other three, actually. But the, those three, Harris, Hitchens, Dawkins, they, they advocated for atheism in a way that we hadn't really seen 
either in this country or in the United States. And it has to be said, although it's primarily, you know, this is primarily a, a British-American kind of phenomenon, uh, Dawkins in particular is translated into many languages and was a big hit in other countries. And there were sort of versions of this kind of book appeared in other languages as well. So there are a couple of French writers wrote some quite strident, we might say, uh, works of atheism. And, and, and this was really interesting because it sort of changed the game. Atheism went from this thing that people didn't really talk about and perhaps didn't even know what it was into something that was talked about, best-selling books. But together, they, these writers created certain impressions about what atheism meant, which I think in various ways were problematic. The first one is this, I think, that um, they presented religion as essentially, uh, religion was about offering a kind of a quasi-scientific explanation for the origins of the world and, you know, its substance, right? So that's the key thing. There was something, yeah, religion was essentially explanatory in a way that science was, and that there was a fundamental clash, therefore, between religion and science. And what we had to do is simply get over this. We had to recognize the fact that there was no room anymore for all this childish nonsense about, you know, Garden of Eden, Genesis, whatever it might be, and all of that, and just accept the scientific worldview, and the religious one just has to go, right? And along with that was also the view that religion was also harmful in various ways. And one way it was harmful was that it's based on, on faith and dogma, which is basically telling people not to think for themselves. So it was like religion was the enemy of reason. So um, reason was something that was owned by the atheists, essentially. And uh, irrationality and non-reason was in the realm of the religious. And then, of course, was the idea that religion was a source of evil in other ways because it promoted sort of like uh, absolutist worldviews, a conviction amongst followers that they are on the side of the righteous and what is right and everyone else is wrong. So it creates these kind of extremes. And that had been a force for tremendous sort of like problems in the world. And again, it's probably not a coincidence at all that this new atheism emerged in the shadow of 9-11, because 9-11 was seen as a, an atrocity, which was the consequence essentially of a religious ideology, in this case, uh, a, a, a radical form of, of Islam. And so, therefore, the New Atheists felt unapologetic about really going for the jugular with religion. And they also felt one of the problems was that religion had been given a certain respect by our society, which it didn't deserve. And that, therefore, you know, um, it, was, it was not considered polite to criticize religion and that this taboo really had to be broken. So that when people said of the new atheists, oh, you're very strident, you're very outspoken, they would often turn around and say, no, sorry, this isn't true. We're just being open and straightforward and critical. The problem is we live in a culture where people haven't been able to say this stuff. And so when they say it, it's like, oh, you know, that's, that's, not, that's rude, that's not polite. But you should be able to point out, for example, that you know, the Catholic Church has been complicit in systematic abuse of, of young children in many different places in different parts of the world. You should be able to say that without someone saying you can't say that because it's religion and you should show some respect or whatever it might be. And of course, people also saying other things about, about Islam and other forms of, of Christianity as well. So there was this sort of like, you know, the real emergence of atheism as this strident, confident and very critical thing. 
And I think looking back on it, one has to be sympathetic for some of the reasons for this. And I think this depends a little bit on context. I think in the UK context, the new atheism always was a little bit odd in the sense that in the UK, I mean, I don't know what it's like for you, but when I grew up, you know, religion was not something that anyone took seriously apart from people who were dismissed as a bit freaky, right? So, you know, at school or at university, Christian Union types, yeah, 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 yeah. The Christian Union lot were sort of like given a wide berth by everyone else, considered a little bit, a little bit strange, you know. And at school, if people took religion, people just didn't bother about religion, right? Um, you remember, I think one of the key moments in that, that saw a change was, do you remember that time where Tony Blair, you remember Tony Blair? He was he was he was he was the future once. He was the prime minister, and uh, at a press conference, Alistair Campbell, his press secretary, uh, uh, someone asked him uh, Tony Blair a question about religion, and Alistair Campbell said, "We don't do God, right?" <laughs> Which is really interesting, and this is a famous kind of comment. But what I what I think is interesting about that was that. He was right, but this was like the first time someone had had to say explicitly, we don't do God. Politicians didn't do, they never did God, and they, they, never, had, they, they never had to say, we don't do God either, because people didn't talk about it, because in the UK, religion was a private matter, out of the public domain, we, we don't talk about it. In the USA, it was very, very different. Very, very different. So if, if one's trying to think, you know, why one should be sympathetic about more aggressive forms of atheism, it's really important to understand what the context was like in, in the US. Now, I wrote a piece about atheism in America, which I researched, this was about 2009, 2010. I was in America and I was traveling around a bit. And it was a real eye-opener for me. Um, my star witness in this was a, a lesbian atheist single mother who lived in a town called Point, Texas, where you drive in, it's got a little sign saying population 793, okay? Now, imagine this, imagine you're a lesbian, atheist, single mother in, in Point, Texas, right? Um, this isn't gonna go down very well, but actually it turns out that the lesbian and single mother bit were not a problem at all. It was the atheist thing that was the problem. And, and the, you know, if people knew she was an atheist, they'd think she was some kind of devil worshipper or something, right? They had no problem with the lesbian and single mother because they, they knew lesbians, they knew single mothers, you know. This wasn't so weird and freaky. They may not have approved, but it was okay. Atheist was something other. And I met people time and time again who, who reported this. And in, in the US, people use the language of like coming out to describe telling other people that they're atheist, you know. In, in the same kind of way that, athe you know, that being, being gay is something that people had to keep a secret in this country until recently. And perhaps some people still feel they do need to keep it secret. People needed to keep their atheism a secret. There was no openly atheist senator or, or congressman or woman in anywhere at all. No openly atheist mayors or um, anything like that. And uh, another example of how extreme this was, um, I, I met someone who was a drug user, had been a drug user, a serious drug user, and their family knew that. Uh, they still allowed her to babysit, but when they found out she was an atheist, <laughs> and it makes sense in that worldview, because as a drug user, the worst that happens is the baby dies. As an atheist, the worst, the baby goes to hell forever, right? So it does kind of make sense. Now, so I, I think there is, there is, there is there, so there are reasons why there could have been a strategic necessity to be a bit aggressive about atheism, particularly in, in the US. But I think it was a kind of a mistake because for a start, it, it creates 
a false view of atheism as a start. First of all, it means that the, the idea here was that atheists own reason and rationality and religious people have nothing to do with it. And I don't think anyone owns reason and rationality. There are very intelligent and reasonable and rational religious people and they're very idiotic atheists, right? So you cannot, you cannot sort of say, claim reason and rationality only for your own side. That is just dishonest and incorrect. And if you do value reason and rationality and evidence, you shouldn't put forward a claim which is absolutely false. Um, the second problem here is it's claimed, if, if atheism is claimed to be this, you know, the bastion of proper morality, that's kind of false as well. Because the thing about atheism is that I, I, morality is possible within an atheist framework, but there's no particular moral view which inevitably springs from atheism. And in fact, you could be a nihilist atheist and, and you could be an amoral atheist. So atheists don't know morality either. And the other thing is that you know, if, if atheism is supposed to be all about open, in, intelligent debate and so forth, it doesn't really make sense to sort of like create that, that close, closing off. The other point is, is it does fundamentally mischaracterize religions. I think one of the big problems of the new atheists was that religion was all kind of, it was, it was monolithic. It was, it was all about false beliefs, dogma, f trust, not anything else. And as we know, religion is much, much more diverse than that. OK, it's a very, very multifarious thing. There are intelligent uh, and very thoughtful, non-dogmatic uh, religious people. Of course, um, there are. There are also quite a lot of people who believe and have argued that religion isn't fundamentally about those so-called uh, quasi-scientific beliefs at all. It's more about things like practice and so forth. So someone like, and I don't completely buy this line, by the way, we can talk about it later, but you know, Karen Armstrong has said that there's, this, there's mythos and there's logos. Logos is literal sort of truth of the science. And there's mythos, which isn't a derogatory word for like not really true. It's ways of understanding which give us a kind of a moral framework, a sort of a way of orienting ourselves throughout the world. And that religion is mainly about mythos and about a practice, even if it is even if it is and has been largely about presenting false stories about the origins of the universe and so forth. If you get rid of that, you haven't got rid of everything that's in religion and you haven't got rid of everything that's potentially interesting and useful about it. So I think it mischaracterizes religion. And I think that in, in, in the sort of world we live in today, uh, rather than sort of create this sort of like Manichaean division between the irrational and dangerous and evil uh, religious people and the enlightened, rational, sensible uh, atheists, I think what we need is what I'd, I've called a, like a coalition of the reasonable in which people of, 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 no matter what their fundamental convictions about God or not God are, are all committed to a way of thinking reasonably and rationally about the world. And I think part of the problem with the new atheist uh, approach was that it kind of hid that fact. It hid the fact there was a coalition of the reasonable. And particularly, I think, when it came to Islam, actually, I think that I feel very, <laughs> I feel very sorry for anyone who is a kind of intelligent and thoughtful, non-dogmatic Muslim, because the matter of the fact is that uh, a lot of people have been led to believe that is a, a simple impossibility. And we know historically that is, is not true. In, through the so-called Islamic Golden Age, which is in the sort of Middle Ages, there was a huge flourishing of science, mathematics, philosophy within the Islamic world. And someone like Al-Ghazali argued, uh, Al-Ghazali is very interesting, his argument was that if there is a contradiction between what science and reason shows us to be true and what is written in the Quran, 
then what that shows is that that passage in the Quran has to be understood metaphorically rather than literally, right? And so there was someone there, you know, hundreds of years ago who gave, who had a way which is very popular of understanding Islam and the Quran, which made it entirely compatible with a more rational, reasonable approach to the world. But listening to sort of a lot of the new atheist rhetoric, you would think that was an impossibility and these people just simply hadn't understood their own religion properly. So I think, to conclude, I think that hopefully what's happened is that we have moved away from that a bit, that this kind of, there may have been some kind of need for this eruption and this, this kind of bit of a clash maybe and a bit of a wake-up call with the new atheism. But what I kind of see now is that I hopefully got beyond that and, and rather than sort of like... Um, seeing it in these strictly divisive terms. We come back to the point now where we can see that there's more complexity about varieties of atheism, varieties of religion, and the, the common interests that atheists should have with other people who are committed to reason, argument, philosophy, and so forth, uh, crosses those boundaries. And hopefully uh, those days of the really pugilistic days of the new atheism versus religion spats are, if not completely behind us, then uh, fading into the rear view mirror. That's my hope, thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>